I realized I'd muted myself. Sorry, Mark. (laughs) I'm back. There was one strange summer, particularly strange in my life. It was the summer after my freshman year of college. Um, It was a difficult time in my dad's life, and I was living with him during that time. And uh, we ate a lot of dinners at, uh, at happy hour. And uh, we watched a whole lot of MTV. It's been a long time since I've watched MTV, just for the record. But uh, this is a little... uh, I was going to have you bow your heads and close your eyes and raise your hands if you've watched MTV lately. Uh, This is uh, MTV from uh, circa 1990, I guess that would be. Well, the the bizarre thing about uh, music television especially around 1990, is the videos are just so surreal and kind of bizarre. And uh, they might tell a story, but they are not uh, narrative. But uh, there'd be all these strange images and, uh, um, you know, allegories and things happening. And you're like, I don't know what exactly that means. But you come away with a definite impression of, oh, but I do know what that means. And you might come away saying, that was really weird, and yet it was uh, provocative. Or that was really weird, but, but dark. Or that was really weird, but, but beautiful. Or whatever the case might be. Well, there's a couple books in the Bible that are, to me, I hope it might be a stretch, they're a lot like MTV. And that is the book of Revelation and the book of Ezekiel. All kinds of of images, uh, allegory, uh, pictures, visions, things happening that are hard to piece together, but the overall message is very clear. And I hope that uh, you come away with the same impression that I did after spending some time in Ezekiel. My conclusion was, that was weird, and it was glorious. Absolutely glorious. Our God is incredible. Our God just blows our mind when we stop and consider him. I think this is the significance of the book uh, to the original audience and to us as we read it today. It's significant because we see what is right in front of us. We see... um, the pleasures that are right in front of us. We see the trials that are, you know, we're in the middle of. We see current event, events, things that are happening. But what we really need to do in the middle of all those things is to see God, to see what God is like, to see what is important to him, to behold his glory. This pausing to, uh, to consider what God is like, that, that's actually what we call worship. Uh, we just finished this series um, about essential habits of all those who follow Jesus. And one of those in thriving is to thrive in worship, to simply stop and consider how amazing God is. And that's what we want to do this morning. Here, here's our big idea, if you're following along in the notes in your bulletin, is this. To be transformed by the glory of the Lord. To let the magnificent splendor of King Jesus transform our lives. This morning will be uh, just kind of an overview of the book. We'll talk about some of the main themes. We'll see three 
uh, main ways we can um, just really take to heart the message of Ezekiel. Uh, So I just wanted to start off by giving us some some kind of context and get our bearings as we we spend the next several weeks in the book of Ezekiel. Um, Here's the setting, here's where this takes place in in history and where in the world is... um, if you look at the kingdom of, uh, of Judah and Israel, the heyday was under King David. And then, you know, in Solomon's day, it became very glorious. But it also uh, started falling apart. And you can see on this little graph, that's just a picture how the, the nation just kind of came unraveled. Um, and then the northern, you know, they split. And then the northern kingdom, Israel, that, they fell to uh, the Assyrians. And then the, the southern kingdom of Judah just kind of lingered on or, or limped on for, uh, for quite a while after that until they were subdued by Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came in and he, he uh, subdued the, the land, subdued the city, and he took uh, a bunch of uh, exiles back to uh, Babylon. Uh, but the holy city had not fallen. They're still kind of in impact, even though they're under the thumb of Babylon. That's where we pick up our story. Um, that's where, where Ezekiel ministered. Uh, here's some of the, just kind of the characteristics of what to expect in the weeks ahead as we look at this book. Um, it's full of uh, what we might call dream visions, uh, enacted parables. This is where God tells Ezekiel to, do, to act out something that's just really outrageous to make a, a point. Um, he does some really crazy things, we'll see. Uh, there's uh, allegories in it. Uh, there's, there's object lessons. And there's uh, big chunks of it that are just, honestly, a little hard to sort out. Just warning you. Uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary says, For the average reader of the Bible, the book of Ezekiel is mostly a perplexing maze of incoherent visions, <laughs> a kaleidoscope of whirling wheels and dry bones that defy interpretation. This impression often causes readers to shy away from studying the book and to miss one of the great literary and spiritual portions of the Old Testament. So there is a rich, rich uh, lesson about our God in Ezekiel. uh, And what a beautiful portrait of how amazing our God is. So I'm just saying, don't get lost in the swirling, twirling wheels. Uh, Stick stick with us as we... we, uh, unpack it, so to speak. A big part of the book of Ezekiel is a literature that's called apocalyptic. I know sometimes we talk about, you know, all these apocalyptic films and etc. Well, there was, that was a, a known genre in, in, uh, in Jewish history, is, uh, is writing apocalyptic literature. This is not totally unique to the Bible. But what's really unique about the biblical apocalyptic literature is instead of being escapist, it draws the reader to, uh, to do something in the present. Instead of just saying wild things about like, oh, one day it's going to be better and these crazy things are happening, it makes us think about, wow, what should I do in response right now? In fact, I think Ezekiel has the two uh, same applications that any prophetic uh, book of the Bible has. That is one to cause us to live holy lives in expectancy of what uh, God will do, and two, to live in a profound sense of hope in what God will do. So if when you look at prophecy and 
your focus is getting caught up in all the, the detailed timelines and the speculation and I wonder if they'll make a film of this, uh, then you're missing the point to live holy and to live with hope. It's not escapist. It's not speculation. It's very, very practical. Okay, so here's uh, the major uh, themes that we will encounter. Uh, that's supposed to say themes up at the top, not characteristics. <clears throat> that's what happens when you cut and paste. Um, some things we'll encounter is just the holiness of God, uh, contrasted with uh, the not-so-holiness of us, uh, the judgment of God and the reasons for it, uh, individual responsibility. We'll see, have a huge message of hope. That's just amazing. And a major theme is God's redemptive purposes. What is God up to? What is he doing in the world? And New American Commentary suggests this, which I agree. Does Ezekiel believe that God's actions in history had a singular purpose, namely to bring the knowledge of his glory and the greatness to all nations? This is what God is up to. This is uh, what he's doing in world events is he's making his name known among the nations, which is pretty awesome. But this overarching um, theme, image, phrase that we keep uh, coming back to in Ezekiel is this simple uh, compound or hyphenated word that is the glory of the Lord. Or for those who speak Hebrew, it's something like Chabad Yahweh. The glory of the Lord. It's a hyphenated little phrase that appears 27 times in the Bible. Nine of those are in Ezekiel. So you can see how it's a, it's a big emphasis of Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord. And it's very fascinating to trace the glory of the Lord uh, in the story of the Bible. We first introduced to it in, um, well, I should back up. I'll, I'll hold right there. Um, sorry, I lost my place. I'm coming back. We first are introduced to the glory of the Lord in Exodus. Outside the, the tent, or first on the mountain, where the glory of the Lord is a consuming fire. That's the first time we ever hear about the glory of the Lord. Okay, I know this is going to be really distracting. Uh, if we don't go here first, then, then you're going to be confused later. I'm just going to back up. Uh, because this, I think we need to sort of define and get our mind a little bit around this phrase, the glory of the Lord. Uh, one way to describe it is the physical manifestation of God's significance. Well, God's glorious all the time, right? He's, he's omniscient. He, he knows everything. He could do anything. Uh, he's, he's all love. He's justice, power. He's all these things all the time. But at certain points, there's a physical manifestation of his significance. We might say it's the obviousness of God's presence. Well, God's presence is all around us, but sometimes in history, he makes it real, real obvious. Or we might say it's an encounter with God's splendor. Um, it's just hard to pack into a phrase, but this is the, the gist of it. The glory of the Lord. I admit, and it'll become obvious, that I uh, do not follow football. Don't think 
poorly of me. It's just um, I do other things. Not noble things, I just do other things. Um, while you're watching the game, I might be playing video games. Who knows? I might be riding my bike if it's not raining. But I heard there's a game on today. And I heard that the Rams have a really impressive uh, lineman. I don't know if you've heard of Aaron Donald. Anybody? Okay, somebody that Oren has. I heard he's very impressive. It's one thing to see uh, Aaron Donald, like, at Denny's in an oversized, you know, sweatsuit eating oatmeal. You know, I'm sure he does that sometimes. It's another thing to see Aaron Donald from, uh, you know, club seats, you know, on the 50-yard line. Stadium lights on. You see the beads of sweat. You see the steam in the breath. You see him, you know, maneuver through, and you hear helmets crunch and all that. That's a whole different way to experience Donald. Likewise, God is always glorious. But sometimes he reveals his glory to us. We know that Aaron uh, could rip our arms off while he's eating oatmeal at Denny's, but uh, where he really shows his splendor is on the field. So, now because that picture is going to distract you if I didn't go there first. So we, we first encounter the glory of the Lord in Exodus on the mountain. God is this consuming fire. And then he moves into the tent in Leviticus. That's the next time we see that phrase, the glory of the Lord. And he, uh, it, the people see his glory and are just completely blown away by it. Um, Leviticus nine twenty three to 24, it says this. The glory of the Lord, the same compound word. It appeared to the whole community, and fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and consumed the burnt offering. And when the people saw this, they shouted with joy, and they fell face down on the ground. That response is how uh, it should affect us when we encounter God. Like, oh, the joy of this is just, it is so incredible, and the terror of it, I'm going to just prostrate before God. They shouted with joy and they fell face down on the ground. That's when we see the glory of the Lord coming out of the tent. Well, later, the glory of the Lord moves into the temple. And uh, the glory of the Lord fills the temple so they couldn't even uh, get in to minister, but, but basically it, it, his glory resided above the Ark of the Covenant. And it was there for, for centuries. But the people disregarded the glory of the Lord. They did not see it as glorious. They did not see it as special, as, as central. And it came into a disrepute and disregard. And that's why we saw that little chart of the nation just going down, 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 down and falling apart because they disregarded the glory of the Lord. And so the next time we hear of the glory of the Lord is in Ezekiel. And so if we just followed the glory of the Lord through the book of Ezekiel, we see that uh, first he's talking about in chapter 1, the glory of the Lord he came in this vision, this throne seat of God with the glory of the Lord. He saw it in, uh, in Babylon. And he wonder, what is the glory of the Lord doing in, in Babylon? It's supposed to be hovering above uh, the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. Well, then in chapter 3, uh, he gets this other vision that, says, that shows him why the glory of the Lord is in Babylon is because it left the temple in Jerusalem. 
And so if you're following the glory of the Lord in Ezekiel, uh, the glory of the Lord's hovering over in the temple in Jerusalem, and it just packs up and takes off toward the Mount of Olives and just heads out of town, cruises over to the exiles in Babylon. Really crazy. And then the next time you hear about the glory of the Lord is when Ezekiel paints this amazing picture of what the Lord showed him of the glory of the Lord returning to a renewed people in a renewed whole realm and where God himself dwelt with his people in a paradise garden city that's just beyond our wildest dreams. And so uh, throughout the book of Ezekiel, we get to follow the glory of the Lord. So why uh, all of this? (laughs) What is the, the point or the, what should we dwell on today? And I think our application really uh, centers around the basic structure of the book, where the first uh, big chunk, first 24 chapters, are about this impending judgment on Jerusalem. The next section is on judgment on the surrounding nations, and this last section is this, this glorious, incredible restoration that's predicted. I think those represent pretty much all the places that, um, that we can be in our own hearts, as, as we'll see as we, we move forward. In just the time we have left, we're going to look at three ways to be transformed by the glory of the Lord. First of all, if you're taking notes, revere the glory of the Lord. Uh, we'll skip around a little bit today, but I'd love to just read one passage in chapter 3 of Ezekiel, starting in verse 11. And here's God speaking to Ezekiel. He says, Go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. Well, it turns out they, they refused to hear, but he told them nonetheless. Verse 12, Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the, what? The glory of the Lord from its place. Verse 14, uh, The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. And I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv. Uh, This is not the same Tel Aviv, that's the capital of Israel. This is a different place of the same name. Uh, B's and V's are pretty much interchangeable in Hebrew. And it feels like it in Spanish too, but I could be wrong. But anyway, he came to the exiles there who were dwelling by the Cheber Canal, and I sat where they were dwelling. And this last part is what I want us to focus on. I sat there overwhelmed among them for seven days. So Ezekiel uh, encounters the glory of the Lord, and he just sits there in utter amazement, overwhelmed for an entire week. It just blew his mind. This is how it should affect us when we really think about what God is like. We need to let the reality of how amazing God is just sink in and overwhelm us. The fact that God is real and that he's among us, it should fill us with this joy and this terror at the same time. That's just... uh, that just blows our minds. And it draws us to live holy lives. God's people had long lost any reverence for the glory of the Lord. 
we, we have this uh, scenario that is just so pathetic uh, described in, um, in the Kings, where they uh, neglected the temple so much that they didn't even know where to find the scriptures in it. They, they were doing some renovations and cleaning, like, oh my goodness, we found this old book. It's, it was that bad that they neglected uh, the Lord's glory. And here's the problem. They did not consider how glorious God is, and they started just living, you know, in their fleshly ways. Just, they were doing all sorts of terrible things. And uh, they interpreted God's patience for God's indifference. They thought, well, we've been, we've been doing these things a long time, and he didn't strike us dead, so it must not be that big a deal. It is easy for us to fall into that same place where we, we carry on. It's like, well, you know, kind of make these compromises and, and et cetera, and time goes on. Well, apparently God doesn't care that much. He hasn't done anything yet. And we mistake the patience of God for indifference. Here's what's interesting. He's talking to refugees in, um, in Babylon. Uh, he's like in a refugee camp. That's where his ministry was. But even though the city, as I said, had been subdued, it had not fallen. Um, New American Commentary again says, in spite of conquest of Judah by Babylonians, the Hebrew people were convinced of two things. Well, one was that Jerusalem itself would never be destroyed or fall to a pagan power. And two, they believed those taken hostage would be coming home soon. So even in their, uh, in their exile, they were still indifferent, figuring out, oh, this is all just going to work out. We're going to get to go back soon. You know, the holy city, that'll never fall. That's all okay. And Ezekiel gave this message to them time and time again that says, oh, no, it's actually going to get far worse. You have mistaken, mistaken the patience of God for indifference. I think, what does that mean for us? It's so easy to get lax about, you know, holy living. Think, well, those lustful thoughts, they're just in my head. They're not really hurting anybody. Or I just lie a little or, you know, cut corners or cheat. And I haven't been struck by lightning. So, you know, God doesn't, he must not think it's that big of a deal. And we carry on. And Ezekiel's message to us is, oh, contraire. (laughs) The Lord does know, the Lord does see, the Lord does care. In fact, in Galatians 6, it says, Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. It's like God's paying attention. So if you've become indifferent about holiness, uh, you and I need to be transformed by really revering the glory of God, the glory of the Lord. Just humbly Look at that and be in awe of how amazing God is. But maybe you are really trying to live right, and you take his, uh, his glory serious, um, seriously, and uh, you're, you know, you're trying to be a good person, you're trying to do what the Bible says, but maybe the, where the rubber meets the road for you, maybe the, the application for you, or maybe the question for you, or issue, is what about all those people that are doing evil in the world. I'm trying my best. I'm, you know, trying to do the straight and narrow, but what about all these people that are getting away with all these, these things? People who are, are blaspheming uh, the Lord's name, who are, who are um, 
who are just completely against God and his holiness. And why are they prospering? What do you, doesn't God care about that going on? And so I'm going to suggest the second way we should be transformed by the glory of the Lord is to trust it. By that, I mean uh, trust that God can take care of his own name. <laughs> After repeated unheeded warnings, uh, Jerusalem actually came under siege again. Verse 20, I mean, chapter 24, so we're well into the book. Verse 2, it says, uh, God speaking to Ezekiel again, Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. And so after this time of indifference and like, oh, I'm sure we'll get to go home soon, all of a sudden the holy city is under siege and the screws are, are tightened down. And no longer did they have the question of whether God cares about their own holiness. Their new question is, what about all those wicked people? How can God let a nation more wicked than us be the ones to judge us? This does not make any sense. God doesn't know what he's doing. Doesn't God care? Isn't God going to act? And so this whole section in the middle of the book is where God tells Ezekiel, uh, yeah, I'm going to act. I'm going to take care of all those things. I'm going to take care of Tyre. I'm going to take care of Egypt. I'm going to take care of, of Ammon and all these other nations who had, who had uh, mocked uh, Judah and Israel in the middle of their judgment. God's people must trust that God, in his time and his way, will vindicate his own reputation. I was thinking of this in the context of uh, when we watch the news or hear what's going on, and it'd be real easy for us to fret about, uh, for instance, uh, laws that are passed down or made that are so contrary to Judeo-Christian morals and ethics. Like, God, how could you let that happen? Or when we see Christians in parts of the world that are under um, you know, direct persecution. Or we see secularism and pluralism just kind of expanding and just taking over and taking over. You're like, God, how could this be? I'm trying to live right, and how come there's all these losses for your name? And it's easy to get angry. It's easy to, get, to be filled with, with hatred even. To be filled with fear. Uh, should we be concerned? Yes. <laughs> Should we pray? Yes, with lots of exclamation points. But not for a second should we doubt that God is aware and he's capable to take care of his own name. When we trust that God will take care of his glory, his own glory, then we can exchange fear and hatred and vengeance for peace and kindness and goodness. This is exactly what we're told to do in, in Romans 12, verses 18 to 21, says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so I think this whole middle section of Ezekiel, is it's really a relief. It says, yeah, there's evil in the world, and God will take care of that. You don't have to be filled with hatred. You don't have to let evil overcome you. We can, so far as it depends on us, be at peace and return unkindness with kindness. Kindness.
So we should not confuse God's patience with, our, with indifference in our lives, but we shouldn't confuse God's patience with indifference about evil in the world either. God is patient. He wants, he wants all people to come to him. He's waiting. That's why he doesn't just, you know, wipe us out. We need to trust that he can take care of his own glory. Well, the final big section of the book makes a dramatic turn, and it's really pretty special. The third way to be transformed by the glory of the Lord is to, to put your hope in it. Put your hope in the glory of the Lord. So they were living in this time of indifference, and then uh, the city was under siege, and then they really wake up, but they start complaining about the others, and why don't they get struck? And uh, then in, ver- in chapter 33, we see that the holy city has finally fallen. Verse 21, in the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, you know, a day they'll always remember, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and he said, the city has been struck down. The, this holy, precious, set-aside city, the temple, and all those precious things just laid waste. Just destroyed, just ripped apart. Any hope of uh, soon returning, any hope that, oh, it's not going to be that bad, uh, is over. And now they enter into just despair. We're utterly undone. We are in ruin. Before the siege, indifference, during it, these doubts about the other nations, and then after it, it's just this despair. But in that place of despair, in that place of shame, in that place of defeat and the ruin, God gives an entirely different message. It's a message of hope. Ezekiel's whole, you know, the whole flavor of the book changes. It pivots at that point where God says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to breathe new life into you. I'm going to restore what's broken. I'm going to, to fix what's, what's ruined. He'll pick up the mess. He'll reestablish this glorious realm and he'll bring his glory, his presence right down there in the midst of them once again. How awesome is that? It, it's a message on a national level for the people of, of Israel. Um, there, there's things, there's prophecies toward God's people, uh, the Israelites, that uh, have not been fulfilled yet. He still has some things to, to take care of there. Beautiful things. It's a worldwide uh, message of hope because all who have been given new life through the Spirit by trusting in Jesus will share in this glorious future of a renewed paradise where God dwells among us. That is just incredible. It's also this message of individual hope. If the combined effects of your own sin and other people's sin has brought you to a point of despair, or shame, or hopelessness, God could breathe new life into you. Put a heart of flesh where there's a heart of stone. To come back and, and reside where, uh, with you, where you could be in his presence, where there's healing, there's forgiveness, there's restoration of relationship. Uh, so there is hope, even in the darkest, darkest place. There's always been a reason to hope, But when we put our hope 
There's always a reason to hope when we put our hope in the glory of the Lord. So, just kind of putting this together real quick. How do we get from this place of spiritual indifference where, oh, I just kind of keep sinning, but, you know, God has a struck me dead, so I just kind of keep sinning. How do we get from there to a life of holiness? Well, we stop and we consider the glory of the Lord. <laughs> we stop and like, oh my goodness, God is way bigger than I thought, and I, how in the world could I do these things? How do we get from this place of, of uh, hatred toward the world and, you know, what about them, God, to a place of, of peace and love and forgiveness? Well, we shift in our minds and realize, oh, God can take care of his name. God can vindicate his own glory. That's his job. He's like, you're, you're not the vengeance one. I'll take care of it all in my time, in my way. That's beyond what you can imagine. And finally, how do we get from this place of despair and shame to a place of renewed life, of joyous intimacy with God? We, we put our hope in the glory of the Lord, in his glory. This really cool verse we came across last week in our uh, discussion, our 9 o'clock hour discussion, is, uh, oops, I think I, how about this one? Uh, in Exodus 20, 20, says, this is Moses, he says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. It's a little bit hard to piece that together at first. He says, don't fear, fear. Like, ah, I'm not fearing, I'm not fearing. Um, I'm calling this 2020 vision, Exodus 2020, like that. Uh, don't fear, but fear. And, and I think I could paraphrase it like this. You don't need to cower or hide. Go ahead, God invites you to come near. And when you draw near and behold his glory, let it scare the filth out of you. It's this combined invitation, like, just come, come right to me. I'm here with arms open wide. And when you see what I'm like, let that purify you. Fear, don't fear the Lord. So here's just the simple challenge is uh, take time, you know, this week and the next day, the next two days, just to set aside, just to behold the glory of the Lord. Think about what God is like. Think about the implications that has on, on your life for, for holiness and for hope. Um, we just need to put our eyes on him. Let it change you. Holiness, goodness, peace, hope. And over these next several weeks as we look at Ezekiel, I sure hope that you conclude, uh, yes, that was weird, but it was glorious. Our God is, is glorious. I would invite the choir to come back up now. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord God, your, your glory is just beyond anything we can imagine. But give, give us a taste of it as we, as we soak ourselves with your word. You've revealed so many things that, that uh, just should strike awe in our hearts. I pray that we would set aside the time to just uh, cast our thoughts on you, to behold you, to think about just how... Just magnificent you are, and then let that, uh, let that transform us from the inside out. You are a good God, you are a holy God, and you are a, a gentle God at the same time. And, and wow, we just, all we can do is just worship. We, we love you so much. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.